0: If you abdicate financial responsibility of your money, that's where you're going to lose. Now, should everyone spend lots of time studying money? No, but you should understand if you hire someone, what they're doing with it and why.
1: Welcome back to the show. Today, my guest is Sean Ryder. Sean has been my business mentor for the better part of two and a half years, and in the time that we've worked together, we have developed both a professional relationship, but also a friendship. One of my favorite things that Sean said to me early on is to only take advice from people that have skin in the game, and Sean is that person. He opened his first CrossFit gym while also working a full-time job as a high school finance and economics teacher. Um, today, Sean is functionally retired. He's gone from $0 to $4.5 million in real estate in seven months and he's become a millionaire all before the age of 35. Sean is now focused on helping other people build a life by design that prioritizes freedom of time as much as it does freedom of money. If you are looking to improve your financial literacy, this podcast is going to be amazing for you. Enjoy. Hey everyone, real quick before we dive into the episode, you probably heard about this podcast directly from someone else or saw it shared on social media. We can only grow, spread our message further, and keep bringing in awesome and amazing guests with your help. If you could take five seconds and hop on whatever podcast platform you're using and leave us a review, it would mean the world to us. On to the show. Sean Ryder. Welcome to the show. What's happening? Dude, I'm excited. This is awesome.
0: I've been looking forward to this all week. (laughs) Uh,
1: I know Iris would give anything to be on this call as well. (laughs) Uh, So for the listeners, Sean has been our personal business mentor um, underneath of Two Brain Business for the better part of two and some odd years at this point, I think somewhere in there. Yeah. Right. About two years.
0: Yeah. The past two, three years have been a blur for every business owner. So it feels like a year, but it's probably been two to two and a half.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's uh, it, it time flew. It was funny. I was talking with Iris about like trying to figure out when we signed up for two brain and it took us a long time even to figure it out because like everything that was going on back then was just so uh, unorthodox and confusing. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, but it's, been,
0: it's been a great ride.
1: Yes, it absolutely has. Well, um, you know, it's been wonderful working with you. And I think part of what has made it so much fun is that you are a gym owner yourself. Um, so tell everybody a little bit about your gym and when you got started and how that whole thing kicked off.
0: Yeah, so we just flew past the the 10-year mark um, this past year. So we're into, you know, wrapping up, not wrapping up, but into year 11. So I've been a gym owner for most of my adult life, graduated college. Became a high school teacher. And then the spring semester of teaching high school is when I started a gym. Had a partner at the time. We started an an illegal storage shed and uh, grew from there. So uh, once the city zoning told us we needed to get out of the storage shed, we found a location. And um, fast forward 10 years, still chugging right along. So uh, it doesn't come without its battles uh, throughout the 10 years. But um, love owning businesses, whether it's a gym or some other businesses now. But uh, business ownership is been uh, a great pathway for me, my family, and the people that I get to work with on a regular basis. So thoroughly enjoyed the journey.
1: Yeah, I love that. So there's two points there I want to want to double click on. The first one I wanted to ask: like, what was it that uh, made you want to get out of teaching?
0: Yeah, so I absolutely loved t- teaching. Um, I was explaining to someone yesterday uh, when they asked a similar question, like when I went to college. I went to college for business. And then I really had to think about what I wanted to do on a regular basis. And I guess looking back, it was, how did I want my day to be structured? And uh, when you go into school at five years old, And what you know is going to a school from 8.30 in the morning until 3.30 in the afternoon, Monday through Friday, no weekends, no summers, no holidays. I was like, man, I actually really like that schedule. And that was the deciding factor. And I was fortunate enough that I was already going to a university, Appalachian State University, that is one of very few universities in the country that offer a business and marketing education degree to become a high school business teacher. So wow. I didn't have to transfer. I just had to take some additional education credits. And so I went right into teaching. Um, so I could have kept doing that, but uh fast forward uh being a gym owner and a teacher for you know around the four year mark is when I really started getting serious about hey, how many more years am I going to burn the candle at both ends before I commit to this quote unquote risk? I define risk differently nowadays. Um, I think it would have been risky for me not to take the risk anymore. Uh, But I did sell myself on the idea like, hey, there's always going to be a job. There's always going to be someone hiring somewhere. Um, But at 26 or 27, at that time, years old, it was like, man, um, I have a fiance. We're not married and we don't have kids yet. So why do I not take the risk? And she really was a deciding factor in nudging me to, to quote unquote, pull the trigger and leave after my fifth year of teaching. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, it wasn't a hard decision. The, the actually taking that leap and walking. I remember it till this day. I was during my planning period at, around lunchtime and just leaving my classroom and walking to the principal's office and sitting down and literally, you know, hard conversations are, you know, you just got to get past that first 15 seconds. And right. I, I, I looked at her in the eyes was like, Hey, this is my last semester teaching. I won't be back next year. And walking back from that meeting to my classroom was a huge weight lifted off my shoulders and it felt really, really good.
1: Isn't it? That's always the irony of, of taking risks, right. And going the direction of what you, you truly know that you want is that it's, it's, there's so much, you know, fear leading up to it. But once you make that decision, it feels so good every time.
0: Yeah. I mean, I just move forward. So it was like, okay, you, you got past that hurdle and now, you know, you're going to finish out these last couple of weeks. And on the last day, took a picture of my classroom. And my hope was that I'd never have to walk into another one as an employee teacher. Again, I want to walk into classrooms as a presenter. Absolutely love talking to high school students. I've presented at the college across the street at their college of business. Absolutely loved that love presenting. Um, Obviously still an educator in a different realm, whether it's coaching a fitness class or mentoring business owners, but um, man, such a good feeling to stop sitting on indecisiveness and Mm. making a decision. And here's the thing, like some people that, You study or read books. It's you know there's the event, and then there's your response to it, and that equals your outcome. So like, make a decision that creates the event, and then however you respond to it. If I continued to be a teacher, things probably would have worked out well for me. They would have worked out differently, but they would have worked out well because I would have focused and done my best there. But then once I left and did business full time, I focused and I did my best there and and doing your best at something you care about creates the outcome, which for me is um, I've reached the definition of success that I made clear to myself, which is the control of finances and time. And and that's where we sit
1: today. The other thing that I wanted to double click on there was your origin story with starting the gym, because I feel like you and I came up in a similar um at a similar time to where you were, it was easier to start a CrossFit gym. You know, it required less money. There was a lot more freedom in the way that you would go about doing things because there was so much unknown about CrossFit and because it was kind of at the hockey stick on the graph and was really taking off. There wasn't a whole lot of marketing that was involved. There wasn't these huge competitive markets within group fitness of like, uh, Orange Theory, f forty five, Soul Cycle, and these sort of things—none N- of that, or, or much of it, existed. You know, do you think that it would be a lot harder if you were to try to do that now?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I don't balk at the fact that I started a business in two thousand twelve, right when the greatest bull run in the United States, from an economic perspective, started. So, from a luck and timing perspective. Um, Commercial real estate was cheap at that time because the whole town was basically barren and empty with four lease signs. So we came into a nice building uh, for a low overhead and we also bought the bare minimum equipment uh, for a low cost. And a little bit of backstory there is like I am very fiscally minded. And so I came out of college and got a teaching job and I'm very open about what I made. Like I made $35,000 a year before taxes, my first year of teaching, my savings rate on that as a 22 year old, non-married, no kids was 50%. So from a savings rate, I was saving 50% of my income. So fast forward six months. That's a couple thousand dollars. I think I hit twenty thousand dollars in my bank account within my first year of teaching. So when you're looking at investing eight to ten grand in gym equipment and a down payment on a commercial building uh, for rent, like it was very low risk from a financial standpoint. We didn't pay, you know, a huge franchising fee. We didn't get into a, a, a huge space. We didn't fill the space. I mean, we had concrete floors for a year and a half. We didn't have a heating system. We didn't have windows. Like. We had cinder blocks as windows, right? Um, so it was very low, low overhead from a risk perspective there. But that's yeah, good time. Twenty twelve was a good year to get started.
1: Yeah, we were. We started in twenty eleven. It was um, it was a wild ride, man. I mean, in the <laughs> beginning, it was like incredibly bare bones. You you made um, you made do with what you had, and people accepted it. You know, I think back then there was there was something there was a mystique almost around the grungy feel. You know, you had people coming in that otherwise their exposure was to a YMCA or some sort of like athletic club where everything is cleaned every five seconds and is pristine, but it's very dainty and quiet and like no one's dropping weights. And then like one of my favorite stories is we had a member who showed up at our gym to sign up. I don't know. This was probably back in 2013 or so. And she was like, I walked in the door and you guys were blaring DMX music and people were dropping weights and like grunting. And she was like, this is my gym, you know? And like, it's so amazing. Cause that just embodies what CrossFit was back then and what really allowed it to separate and didn't require gym owners to come into that space at, you know, 22 to 25 years old with no real money to be able to put behind right. it and be able to produce some serious, serious, um, y- you know, products and services for their members. It was awesome.
0: It was awesome. And, uh, you know, we were at the forefront of everything that was changing at that time. Like we didn't have a website for months. It was just people driving by and, and seeing us working out outside and be like, hey, what are you doing? Um, and, then, and then we got a website and all of a sudden you started getting a little exposure. And then Facebook started allowing you to boost posts. Like I was probably one of the first CrossFit gym owners to spend $20 on a boosted post. Um, and, the, and the first time I ever ran a Facebook campaign and figured out the back end of it, and ran like a quote unquote on-ramp in January of 2014 or 15. I mean, we sold out 10 spots in the first two days. Uh, and we did what that. What I
1: would give. Yeah. Dude, what I would give to know what I know now yeah. in like 2014, 15 markets. Oh my god, This is what happened. Like,
0: I would run two weeks before the start of a month, I would run an on-ramp uh, campaign campaign. On Facebook, limiting it to 10 people. We sold, this is how my gym grew. We sold that out seven months in a row. That's so, like, just do the math. It was 70 members in seven months. You know, now you got people that can, you know, when they did the really starting to get a hang of Facebook ads pre COVID, it was, you know, 70 members for one challenge. But back in 2015, it was insane. Uh, the, yeah the well then of the, then
1: the 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 weird guy with the the long hair and the mustache came in and ruined it for all of us because <laughs> yeah. he basically he basically <laughs> scooped up the entire lot he did now I, I, I love Alex yeah, um um so what were you know some of your struggles once the industry started to shift a little bit you know what were some of those early struggles as a gym owner that made you seek out mentorship
0: it was really like um you know uncontrolled growth, really, like just trying to pack people in, um, like sardines without systems, without retention systems, with, without follow-up, without client journeys. Um, we just thought, you know, if someone signed up here that we'd keep them forever because CrossFit was so cool. Uh, so once that didn't really work after X amount of months, um, that probably was a hindrance. But to be honest with you, like looking back, it was probably the fact that I was in my 20s. I was not a very good communicator. I had a business partner at that time, a little bit older than me. um, And and we just, you know, I wasn't a good communicator. So I had certain feelings about certain things and I kept them shut. So that was probably the biggest issue I had. It wasn't anything around technically business or CrossFit, so to speak. It was really just my own personal skill set and not educating myself on how to be better at things that I wasn't good at. A being able, for sure, being able to talk.
1: To yeah. So, I, yeah, I can agree with that sentiment a lot. I think that, you know, the, this statement of your business is just an extension of you couldn't be more true, especially in the fitness industry. Um, the more hands on you are, the more you get involved, especially in those early stages. You know, we could call it the farmer or founder stage, you know, as it applies to the kind of the two brain methodology. But um, yeah, I think like the evolvement of an owner, is highly indicative of the involvement of the gym.
0: Sure. Absolutely. I can agree with that. I don't think I have anything to add to that. Um, the once I started educating myself and then surrounding myself, this is where the mentorship came in, surrounding myself with people that were ahead of me and smarter than me. And actually I think my Facebook post today was, um, Listening, and then the key was actually implementing what they said. Right? You can read a book, and if you don't implement anything, it doesn't really matter. But implementing what mentors and people I looked up to, and people who have skin in the game, which is one of my core values, is only listen to people that have skin in the game. I'm going to listen to people that are doing the things that I want to do and living the life that I want to live. And those are the people that I listen to. Everything else is noise, and I put my blinders up, and those are the people I go to for certain things. And I might have someone different for something else, uh, but that's how I kind of have built my life and my network over the past three to four years.
1: I love that. Yeah. And I mean, there comes a point where you just have to accept that the way you're doing it isn't the best way. And it's not a hit to your ego if you want to learn from somebody that's already done it well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's all we're doing, right? All of us are just like sharing information and being able to help each other out. And that's the benefit of like moving on into a group where you're surrounded by people that are doing a bunch of different things really well. Mm.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a melting pot, man. Like I, I might talk to five people uh, that I think are doing a topic very well, um, and I'm not going to try and implement all five things that they say. I might take one or two and mix it into the melting pot of my situation and the context and also how I want to do business. And then it creates its own thing. So I'm getting information from other people and then I mend it into my system and then it's unique to me and it, it works.
1: I love that. I mean, that's the advice we give our clients, right? I mean, come January 1st, how many people do you have to talk off the ledge because Susie at work is doing a new diet, you know, and so, and so recommends X, Y, or Z. And it's like, well, that's not for you right now. You know, like you have to, you can like take advice from people, but it's all got to be put into this like big contextual machine of, well, how does it apply to your life? Yeah. Um, and, and in our case, it's just how did it up does the information and advice apply to our gyms?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um,
1: so now you've, you've got really heavily into finance over the last few years. And now um, in the Two Brain Group, you're starting to become the guy mm-hmm. in this, this particular area. Um, why do you think so many people shy away from talking about money and finances?
0: Oh uh, Yeah, I think that's a, that's a cultural thing for the United States. Um, I think money is taboo. Uh, you know, when we were younger, we were told never ask someone how much money they make. And that's been ingrained in our culture in the United States. Um, And it's just, I don't want to hide behind the facade of, uh, hey, do this, but I'm not willing to show you how it's reaped reward in my life. And I think it goes back to my skin in the game core value, um, that I can articulate probably better nowadays. It's like, if someone's out there trying to educate people, I want to see behind the curtain. I want to look at what they're doing. Um, and I, I was, I have a psychotherapist and we were talking about stuff from my past and I was like, it became very clear in the conversation with her that I, as a shy kid, because I couldn't articulate myself or didn't want to articulate myself, As an athlete starting at five years old, and the first time that my name was in the newspaper, it was like, oh, okay, if I do something that yields a result, that result can speak for me. Like, I wasn't interviewed for that article or that snippet. And and as I developed and got into middle school and high school, and then, you know, the articles keep coming out, it's like, okay, results matter. So in my psyche, like, results. are very important. I have had to work on not being fixated on just results when it comes to certain things as the measuring stick. Um, But in the world of business, um, I want to see the results from a financial perspective from a personal finance perspective, I want to see results and results don't just have to be top line, right? I really had to get narrow on, Hey, just because someone makes $300,000 doesn't mean that they're good with money. So I had to look at the macro picture. Um, uh, this may not be answering your question, but I just think the stigma, no, it is. I love this. the stigma is still there that people don't want to talk about finances. You know, it's a weird feeling if someone's like, Hey, I make 50 grand and someone's like, Oh, I make 150 grand. Like it takes a very unique individual to not Feel normal in that situation, or for someone not to feel uncomfortable, um, especially if they're doing the same thing or they think they have the same skill set. Like, why are you making this? And I'm not making that. Um, but I'm very open to discussing money. I'm very open to discussing my thoughts on money. I'm very open to disagreeing with other people on their thoughts about money. And at the end of the day, I have a certain way that I do things with money and if you disagree with that that's fine I'll agree to disagree but at the end of the day if you're not actually getting to your goal or the type of lifestyle that you want to live using your strategies you may need to open your mind a little bit to what someone else is saying that's why I don't like that's why I don't like to just stick to you know seven baby steps to build wealth. I think there's other ways to do it. And I think some people get fixated on, I need to do these seven things or these five things or these three things. And um, I'm only going to stick to that. I'm not going to listen to anyone else because this person told me not to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, it's so funny because I typically do this analogy from the opposite direction. I always make analogies to fitness and nutrition, by the way, of connecting it to finances. And now we can kind of look at it in reverse. And I think one of the things that we struggle with, with people in our gyms is that not everyone needs to count calories or know exactly what their food intake is. But if you are over nourishing or under nourishing for that matter, it helps to have a good pulse on the total amount of food you're taking in on a regular basis. And I think in this case, the people that are maybe having a a harder time talking about finances, don't have a very good grasp on their own and it makes them anxious mm-hmm. right, and tentative and unwilling to want to talk about it. So even just by having a further or deeper understanding about their money, where it's going and what their financial strategies are, it makes it much more comfortable to be able to have that conversation. And I think that's one thing that I've noticed in being around other successful gym owners is that it's just a more comfortable comfortable conversation to be able to have because people are tracking these things. People are putting plans in place and they care deeply, not just about their own success, but about the success of the people around them.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the more I've talked to people about money, the more I've learned about money, the more I've learned about other people and what they do with their money and how they feel about money um and and that is a good cycle to be in because it's this rinse and repeat and every the compounding on the knowledge and experience allows me to connect with more people um to go back to something that you kind of said there is like there's like the macro level principles and then there's the micro level strategies. So for fitness, it's, Hey, keep it simple, which is move your body, eat mostly real food and sleep. Well, if you do those three things, you're going to make some pretty good progress. But then of course you get on social media and you see people doing uh, cold plunges, toe spacers, they're tracking their macros, their intermittent fasting there. And all these are strategies. Um, so I, I don't mind the the macro level for finance would be, Uh, increase your income, make sure you spend less than you make, and then distribute or put your money to work. Those are three broad stroke statements that I think most people can agree on. Make money, save some money, and invest some money. Now, the strategies that are the micro level there is going to differ based on the person, their psychology, and their specific goals. Um, And what I try and do is just connect the dots for people, man, just like you do at your gym.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good point. Now, what are some personal beliefs that you had to update or change for yourself around money as you started to have more of these conversations and wanting to learn more about it? Yeah,
0: um, it was really just starting to question the status quo. Um, actually, when I was a teacher, I noticed that teachers in their email, they all would have like this quote at the bottom. And so I Googled quotes and I found one that I really liked. I don't even know who to attribute it to, but it was observe the masses, do the opposite. And I started to apply that to finances. And it's like, well, what do the masses do? Uh, They save money in a retirement account. Well, why are they doing that? Or I started asking people why they're doing that. And most people don't really have a good answer. Well, I was told to do it. Um, Well, my dad did it. Well, so and so. Um, so I really had to wrap my mind around, uh, where I was saving money for the future and why I had to wrap my mind around, is there a time and place when I don't need to save for the future? Um, and I think this is a stigma is like, you have to quote unquote pay yourself first. Well, no one ever takes that sentence further and creates a paragraph out why pay yourself first and where to pay yourself first and when to, and when not to pay yourself first. There are people struggling to pay for groceries right now because of inflation, yet they're still setting 4% of their income aside in a 401k to get a tax deduction, right? That they can't touch for the next 30 years. It's like, Hey, if you're struggling right now in the short term, maybe stop contributing to a 401k. So that's kind of to answer your question is like stop, I had to wrap my mind around what are most people saying and when would I not do some of those things? Um, I had to start learning that finances don't have to be an either or situation, You're either going to save money for the future or you put money in an account to spend or save today. That's going to yield you nothing. You're either going to save for college or do this thing. You're either going to have a pre-tax account or a post account And then I started realizing that there's some tools out there that you can use to, to do this and that, and you can get the same characteristics out of one thing um, instead of Having to separate your money, or only deciding on doing this one strategy to get this
1: one outcome with this one particular characteristic. So less binary, more continuum. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a good way to put it. You're a smarter man than me. I wouldn't phrase it that way, but I like that.
1: <laughs> Listen, <laughs> but yeah, maybe in some things, but you got me beating a lot of others. Uh, I had, uh, you know, our our Lord and Savior over at Two Brain, uh, Chris Cooper, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he said that. One of his focuses around um, businessisgood.com and some of his uh, initiatives that he's focusing on at the moment is to change the stigma around success and financial wealth and money building um, for business owners because he said that a lot of times when people know that somebody has made themselves or their company a lot of money, there's an immediate stigma attached to them and it's almost always negative. Mm-hmm. Um how have your views of finances changed uh, or have, have your views of finances changed the way you view successful people?
0: Very good question. And so one thing I did learn was I can't put my definition of success on someone else. So when I try and compare or analyze or look at someone or talk to someone about their quote unquote success, I want to know and understand how they, Uh, Define it. Um, I I did have to wrap my mind around seeing one number uh, coming from a results oriented person. uh, Just seeing one number did not actually mean someone was quote unquote successful from a financial standpoint. Uh, But to kind of bounce off of what Chris was saying. Um, the one thing, you know, growing up, I, I heard statements about friends, parents who were business owners, and it was like, oh, well, they're rich. Oh, well, they're wealthy. Oh, well, they can buy anything they want. Um, and it was framed in a negative context. Um, I, I never understood some of the positive things business owners were doing, right? Um, especially in the gym space, right? Service-based business. We are, quote unquote, hopefully changing people's lives. Um, whether it's from a physical, spiritual, or mental standpoint, Um, from a business owner's perspective, business owners, if they are, I'm going to use successful, let's say from a financial standpoint, they have excess cash flow from a business, they get to dictate and do things with it. And one of those things is paying themselves. Now, if they pay themselves, they may go do something with that money. They may buy a car. Well, if they buy a really nice car, that car is going to put commission in a salesperson's pocket. So they're helping the the salesperson. Um, If they decide to take part of their profit and increase salaries with their team, they're creating jobs. If they decide to take part of their profit and create a nonprofit or just decide to donate more, whether that's to the church or the local shelter, they're doing positive things with it. And I don't think the positive things that, successful business people do, it should be more, um, it should be put on the headlines more than some of the negative things we see uh, wealthy people do. And, and the negative things wealthy people do, they'll probably do if they weren't wealthy anyway. So it's really just, are they being a good human or not a good human? It's, it's regardless of the money, the money may uh, just amplify some of those things more, but um, that's where I'm at with that.
1: Yeah. And I mean, in the service-based industries, it's so hard to find success if you don't treat people well. Do you know what I mean? And and sure. to treat people well, you need to evaluate the ways that you're spending your money to make sure that you are giving back value to the people that you care about the most, you know? And I, I find this, I mean, like I'm the same person I was in terms of how much I care about my membership base as I was when I was, you know, 18 years old, becoming a personal trainer, you know, and it's, it's just that I now don't have five clients I work with. I've got 200, you know, and it's that, you know, that adjustment has happened over a long period of time, but like deep and deep down in my heart, regardless of how much money I ever make from owning a gym or whatever other ventures I get into, I care about my clients to the umpth degree.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because at the end of the day that you, you have some people, we talk about marketing, like some people are, are, uh, pre-call maybe, uh, they're looking for the next shiny object. Uh, And it's like, look, just do the thing that you know works, which is being a good human being. So I have my gym shirt on here and it's like good people because we can create this big vision and mission, but we kind of simplified it down into one sentence, like good people coaching, good people. And Marcus Aurelius says, let's stop arguing over what a good man is and be one. It's like, if you're just a good human, good things will come to you. And one of those things may be a financial outcome. When good people have money, they do more good with it. And that's why small business owners and entrepreneurs, they don't have a right to be successful and quote unquote wealthy, uh, but the opportunity that is given to them should not be taken away. Because when those good people make more money, they will do more good with it. And that's really, uh, I I believe, I don't want to speak for Chris, but I I do know enough that I think that is the foundation of his platform with wanting to uh, have business owners succeed in the fitness space. And then with businessesgood.com, like really helping business owners that are, are good people do more good with their money that they make.
1: For sure. For sure. That's awesome. Um, now, speaking of skin in the game, you went from zero to $4.5 million in real estate in seven mm-hmm. months. Mm-hmm. I know you didn't win the Powerball. <laughs> <laughs> Can you uh, talk to everyone about that journey and um, how, how uh, much bravery that required and you know, what it was that, that nudged you to do that in the first place?
0: Yeah, it's probably a, a few things in the culmination of what the macroeconomic worldview and world events have been over the past couple of years. Um, and so let me kind of see where I want to start from. Um, no one can go wrong. No one can go wrong with the basics, which is what I said earlier. Try and increase your income and maintain or increase your savings rate. Because what that allows you is to hoard cash, um, money, allows you to do certain things. Solving the money problem allows you to focus on some of these other things um, that can do good in the world, not only for other people, but yeah, for yourself and your family. So all through my twenties, I, di- I already said what my savings rate was as a high school teacher. So as you know, I got married and became a dual income household, as I started venturing outside of the gym space and doing more contract work to increase my income, our savings rate was still fairly strong. So we were able to just save a ton of money. I became educated. So that's step number one. I became educated on other financial tools that allows me to earn a good return while staying in control of that money and having access to liquidity or capital. So I decided four years ago to use one of those tools Uh, For me, it was overfunding a whole life insurance policy. And I started shoving money into this financial tool that I educated myself on and became pretty savvy at. I did nothing with it. Then the pandemic happened and my business that I built over a seven-year span to a successful level, again, however I define success, I hit that definition through my gym business. That was cut in a 72-day period by 40%. That 40% set us back four years' worth of finances from a monthly cash flow perspective. And so what that did was it made me realize I needed to put money at play in other things that would compound faster or over time. Your speed wasn't the biggest issue, but I just needed money to compound more. And, and so that's when I got educated, there's education again, in my mentor group and started to learn about real estate. Now, I could have started with a small little condo, let's say, a small condo in my town. I did look at a small condo in my town, um, but I started analyzing how much money would that take. And then I started looking at bigger properties and it wasn't, oh, it's a bigger property, so I need more money. Well, that's only a singular way of thinking. What I needed to do was expand my mind. So I had more conversation with more people, and it was like, hey, how are people buying properties like this if they don't have capital? And that's when I got educated on creative financing. And so I think the answer to your question specifically is education was step number one. And then taking that education, a la learning about financial tools and options, and seeing how it fit into one, my situation, and two, my psychology. And wrapping my mind around if I do this thing, which is where the question about fear comes in. My first real estate investment, and this is out in the open, was a commercial building that appraised at $3.25 million. Okay. I that is a big investment for your first investment. Okay. That's very obvious. People can Google how much does it take to invest in real estate? It's like, well, you need 20 to 25% down. Do the math there. That is multiple uh, six figures, hundreds of thousands of dollars on property like that. I did not put multiple six figures into this property of my own cash. Um, and so again, I had to use the education, put it into my system. And once I wrap my mind around the tools, that lowered the risk in my mind. Not only buying the property, but what happens after I buy the property. Now I log into a bank account and see what the liability is that I owe a bank. Right? That number can be scary for people, but I had to redefine what risk meant, who was holding the risk, and if worst case scenario happens, what options do I have? Once I had to work through those things, it actually made me feel really comfortable with doing something like that. And uh, I, I'll go back on something I said I said speed didn't matter, but in this instance, it was speed about the compounding and scale of the money. When there's a couple extra zeros on a deal or a piece of real estate or a business, uh, 10% of a couple extra zeros is a lot of money. It's easy math. And so that's what I was looking for. I was looking to take what most people will do over 10 years. And do that in one fell swoop. And I was fortunate enough to pull it off. And we're going in on a year now. Um, and then after that, because of where I put my money and how I cycle money and what my family's uh, income and savings rate is, um, I was able to cycle my money and, and purchase two smaller properties um, that are Airbnbs and they're cash flowing fairly well. Um, so that's where you know I went from zero investment real estate uh, in January of
1: 2022,
0: to uh, 4.5 million dollars in investment real estate um, by November.
1: Yeah, I mean, being with you now for for just about two years as our mentor, it's been really cool seeing you go through this entire process because it is something that you've been really open about, mm. um, and you know, I think that's important because as you try to change this taboo and stigma around money conversation, as well as be a mentor for people in this space, I think it is a good way to demonstrate you have skin in the game, you know, and, and that there's possibilities that are available to you, uh, that may not be as conventional as one would, you know, one would tend to, to seek out.
0: Well, I appreciate that. And, and one thing as a mentor is I, you can, people see what I'm saying on social media and they're like, Oh, you're doing so many things. Uh, While those things are all complement one another and they're kind of like stacked on top of another, but also as a mentor, if I'm interested in something, I will educate myself on it and then I'm going to take a swing at it. Um, and a swing might just be putting an offer on a piece of real estate. If you've been talking about going into real estate and you actually haven't made an offer, making an offer doesn't mean you're actually buying the property, getting an offer accepted. Doesn't mean you're actually buying the property. You have due diligence. I had offers that were declined. I had offers that were accepted and I backed out two days prior to the end of the due diligence period, right? Take a swing at it. Now with the Airbnb's, You know, I started getting interested in that. Some of my mentees were interested in that. I took a swing. I got an offer accepted. I educated myself. I implemented it. And then, you know, yeah, they're doing well. If someone takes me out to lunch or coffee and we talk about it, I will give them the positives. I will give them the negatives. And then they ask me about, well, which one is the best thing for you? Well, for me, and then I'm open to them. And this is how I answer a question like that. Hey, I've taken a swing at the Airbnbs. Airbnbs are doing well. But the downside is that, you know, it's one of the only things in my portfolio that can take my attention very quickly because it's hospitalities. If someone messages you or your property manager and there needs to be an answer, you need to address it. You can't put it off until tomorrow. And so I say this to people, I've taken a swing. I got an asset, but at the end of the day, if that asset ever negatively impacts my life and the negative side outweighs the positive on what it's adding to my life, I will sell that piece of real estate tomorrow. Most people would be scared about that. Oh my God, buy a piece of property and sell it within six months, within 12 months, within two years. Well, if you sell it in under a year, it's a different tax price. And they would go through all of these excuses. It's like, no, I'm very clear on what I want my life to look like. I'm taking a stab at things that I think will add value to that. I've been very fortunate and grateful that most of the swings I've taken have worked out well so far. But if any of them end up not working out or start again, weighing heavily on me, I will get rid of it and I will move on to the next thing because I've told myself that's the strategy I'm going to use (laughs) moving. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, I think you just highlighted once again, the importance of defining success for yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean,
0: Uh, sorry to cut you off. Some people I've said that quite a few times on this podcast, so I don't want to leave anything uh, behind the curtain. They're like, well, Sean, how do you define success? Like, look right now in the context of my life, and it may be different from you, for you, the person listening, I am 34. I am married and I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. My wife has a full-time job outside of our businesses that she cares about, that she has to go to Monday through Friday. I have a little bit more freedom in terms of time and flexibility. And so my definition of success is, yes, the financial component is earning good income, having a good savings rate. Outside of that, at this point in the season of life that I'm in as a father, as a husband, I put a even higher premium on control of my time. Okay. So if anything starts taking away time from me, that is how I define success. If I, I don't, I I work less than three hours a day. Okay. When I get over three hours of work and some people will be like, oh, it must be, must be must be good. Yeah, it, that is really. I hate that set. That's like it. a
1: pet peeve of mine. I love people it. say I love must, it. Be nice. it must be nice. Must be nice. Must be nice. No,
0: it really is nice. Actually, working three hours a day. Um, if I push past three, I I start to have a different mood. I start to act differently and act in a way I don't want to act. Um, and and so if I worked eight hours a day or accumulated so many assets that took my time eight hours a day, or God forbid, Friday afternoons, when I want to pick my kids up early, or weekends, which I definitely don't want to work weekends. Like I'm not doing something right. And I'm no longer successful, no matter how big that bank account is. So my definition of success for me individually is how much time do I have to myself to dictate what it is that I'm doing, that I can choose to do a podcast with Derek Batman on Thursday at noon right that is a choice that i've made and it was it, it, i i looked forward to it it wasn't something i was dreading so that's my definition of success right now but it plays into the bigger definition of success for my family which is at this point we need good income and we need good savings because we are a young family
1: yeah i love it i mean you you talked about how important freedom of time is for you and this is one of the reasons we run every single one of our employees through this this filter system every time we sit down and have a career map meeting, which is, you know, what matters more to you, freedom of time or freedom of money. And obviously it can be both to some degree, but there's seasonality in life. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's more money and sometimes it's more, more freedom of time. And I think, you know, I experienced that myself and to draw back on the analogy we were talking about with, you know, between fitness and finance. I mean, there are no solutions there are only trade-offs and uh, when it comes to fitness, you know, this looks like, you know, if someone comes to us and says, Hey, I want to, I want a six pack. And it's like, okay, great. Like, here's a list of all the things you're going to start doing and all the list of the things you're going to get rid of. And they're like, wait a minute, I don't want that. And it's like, okay, good. I'm glad we acknowledge that. Now let's come up with a goal that's realistic for you, given the things you're willing to sacrifice and the things you're willing to start onboarding. And I think the same is true, or I would hope the same is true for finance in that there's just trade-offs. You know, you could go out, I'm sure you could put the foot on the gas pedal and go acquire 10 or 20 million in real estate by the end of the year, but at what cost? Now, all of a sudden you don't have the time to spend with your kids. Now, all of a sudden you feel overworked. Now, all of a sudden you're not getting the same amount of sleep at night. So it's really awesome uh, that you you know, have been able to think so deeply about the life that you cherish and define success in a way that aligns with your values. Um, and I know recently you just did A vision board for yourself, which basically drew your life out for the next three years. Can you tell everybody a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So for the people watching the video, like here it is, it's printed off. It's in magazine esque form. Um, now this is very vivid vision macro level in the clouds. Hey, over the next 12 to 36 months, what are some things and thoughts I have about these six particular areas of my life. Um, these are not strategies. This is not a, how to, I go granular with that through a 90 day plan, but this vision casting allows me to look back on the past three years, see what's worked well, uh, see what I want to change and go forward. And the one thing to go off of what you were just saying, whether it's a finance or fitness, this is what I've been saying to a lot of people is just have a better conversation with yourself and, If you're lying to yourself, just get more clear, please, on what you really, really want. Um, Don't feel obligated to set this big lofty fitness goal because other people are doing it. Um, If you actually don't mind being 15 to 20 pounds overweight and having your beer Friday, Saturday, Sunday while you're watching football, is that the most healthy lifestyle Probably not, but if you like that, don't lie to yourself and say you want something else if you're not willing to do that trade-off, like you said. Same with finances. As you said that, I thought about conversations that I have with people that are, I'll go back to the 401k. They're contributing 6% of their income to a 401k to get a 25% match. Okay. Well, if you get a match, that's free money. You have to take it. Well, hold on. Let's, let's analyze that a little bit. If this same person is saying that they have an inkling and desire to buy an investment real estate property, putting 6% of your income in a 401k to get 25% of that in additional funds to be tied up for the next 20 years, that's not getting you closer to the goal you say you want, Okay, which is a piece of real estate that can increase your income today, not in 20 years. So stop lying to yourself, which one's true. Do you want to own real estate or do you don't? I had a conversation with a family member who's been talking to me about real estate for over a year and it goes back to taking the swing. He has yet to even put an offer on a piece of property. If you're saying that and you're not swinging, are you really telling yourself the truth? Try and do that. Doing the vision casting exercise. This took me over two weeks to really dial it in. And this is my third or fourth time doing it. So I've gotten more efficient at it. So think about that. I'm efficient at this, yet it still took 14 days to finalize. So I'm very big on that. I'm not like this big, get very clear on it and stick to the plan no matter what, and this, that, and the other. And you need to be very specific, like, no, have an idea of what you want, then focus on the next 90 days. That's the difference between macro and micro level. Macro levels, big picture micro level is, what are you doing over the next nine days? What are the things, as you said, what are the things you need to start doing? What are the, some of the things you need to keep doing? And what are the, some of the things that you need to stop doing? Don't overwhelm yourself. Pick one or two of each and start it.
1: Yeah, and I think by getting really focused on those areas, you can also just remove the likelihood that you are going to be caught up in shiny object syndrome, mm-hmm. you know, and chasing the newest thing. You know, I think like crypto is a good example of this. And, and obviously you and I both know people that are heavily invested in that Um that I'm sure will do just fine in the long haul. But, you know, there are so many things that keep us distracted, whether it be fitness or finance. And by having core values and being able to filter everything through them, it acts as a preventative measure from constantly seeking glamour.
0: Yeah. And I would I wish I could sit here and say that I have these core values, I have this financial plan in place, and then I don't get distracted and make mistakes. I have
1: of course, but
0: they've been in proportion (laughs) Uh, because I do have a plan. It hasn't been as probably large of mistakes as what they could have been. But when I make those mistakes, I learn from them and then it makes me pause next time that shiny object comes in. And and as entrepreneurs, people can, uh, as you, as more, as the more successful you get, you're going to have way more opportunities and you need to get even more clear on what pathway you want to take. Um, But you cannot go, you, you, won't go as wrong as often. If you always start with education, educate yourself, compare your, that education on whatever that thing is that you just learned about. How does it fit into the mold of the strategy you're using now to get you to your goals? Does it fit or does it require a little bit of flexibility? Um, and how much are you willing to risk and take a swing? How heavy is that bat that you're swinging towards that thing? And, and for me, um, going back to the deal on the commercial building, that was a heavy bat that I was swinging. Um, but I swung it with a little bit more momentum because of one, the education that I acquired, um, from my mentors and to, uh, the, the financial tools that became available to me to, to get that done.
1: Yeah. I know one of the things that you love to talk about as part of that educating is, is the importance of educating yourself. And not just seeking out uh, an individual to do all of your finances for you. Um, you know, can you speak to kind of the importance of not just relying on a financial advisor to take hold of of you know all of your assets and put them to work in the way that they see fit? Yeah, that actually
0: might be part two of the question on why people don't talk about money. One, the stigma and taboo in the United States of not talking about money to people because of how they're going to feel about it if you're in a better spot than them. Um, But two, uh, just financial illiteracy, the fact that people have abdicated the financial responsibility of their own money. That's the phrase that I've been saying. If you abdicate financial responsibility of your money... That's where you're going to lose. You're going to lose money. Uh, Now, should everyone spend lots of time studying money? No, but you should understand if you hire someone what they're doing with it and why. Uh, And that means actually listening to them, asking them questions, but also trying to find other people that are doing it differently and why, and then bringing those situations to the person that's in control of yours and asking them what they think about it. And you may not understand every aspect of everything, but you know humans may have good intuition and you can tell when someone's trying to BS you or they have a short answer and it may be because they don't understand what it is you just said to them. Uh, Allah, let's be very open here. I put my money into overfunded whole life insurance policies. If you ask someone that's a financial advisor or a life insurance agent that's trying to sell you on something, whether they're a financial advisor or life insurance agent, and you say, what do you think about whole life insurance products? And their only response is they are expensive, buy term and invest the difference. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not a good enough answer. That's not a good enough answer. Um, I'm not going to sit here and rattle off 10 questions you should ask them to make sure they fully understand what it is that, that... Overfunding a whole life insurance policy is. Um, but if you educated yourself and read a couple books, you can be uh, deadly enough to have a conversation and figure out if someone's BSing you on a particular topic. So I think nowadays, let's stick with financial advisors. Most financial advisors are putting their, your money into an index fund. You literally can read, I will name drop a book here that is in full support of index funds in the stock market it doesn't take very someone very long to read my social media to know that i have zero dollars of my own money in the stock market read the simple path to wealth by jl collins that book which will cost you less than 20 dollars, will teach you what you need to do with your money if you want in an index fund in stock market you don't need to hire a financial advisor to do that it takes a little bit of money to buy that book a little bit of time to read the book and then to implement what you read and you will not need to abdicate the financial responsibility in your life anymore.
1: Now, can you talk a little bit about what led you to leaning um, towards whole funded or overfunded life insurance?
0: Yeah, it's easier to explain now in hindsight because um, I can articulate myself better in it. But um, here's my thoughts on it as I marinate on the past couple t- couple years, and and some of this is certainly my life experience, um, who I am and and what I'm doing with my life. Um, and some people will call that bias. I am a small business owner. I am an entrepreneur. If I took the risk to start a business, which very few people do, and then you become of the smaller percentage that can actually make money off of their business and you make it past five years and not just make it past five years, but you can actually pay yourself uh, more than a livable wage. I, deep down years ago, I didn't understand why I would take the risk, earn money from that thing that I own, it's a private business, and then the only taught thing that they teach to do with it is to put it in the stock market, which is controlled by public companies, controlled mainly by computers nowadays from a day-to-day basis. And the businesses themselves are controlled by human beings that I don't know. If I took the risk here to earn money, why would I move that money that I that I earned and put it in this thing that I no longer control? So for me, I had to understand that one of my most important core values when it comes to finances is staying in control of my money. So four years ago, the only understanding I had was well, if I put it in a bank account, it's safe and, and I control it there. But again, it doesn't take much education to understand that the banks don't pay anything and inflation will erode the value of your dollars. That's that's a not a good long-term strategy. So I had to get a mentor that does focus on money. And and for me, I'll be open. It was through Two Brain and the, the Tinker group. And my first call with uh, the, the lead mentor there, he asked me what my quote unquote problem was. And it was like hey i'm sitting on x amount of dollars i have it in a bank i don't want it there long term but i also don't want to put it into real estate or sorry i don't want to put it into the stock market and i don't know what else to do with it and that's when he educated me on overfunding a whole life insurance policy so long story short i learned that the overfunded life insurance policy when it's structured a certain way gives me the safety and security of a bank it gives me guaranteed returns and that's where um the the the, the safety that I knew my money was going to um, beat inflation or at least keep up with inflation long-term, um, that came into play. So I was getting returns and then I learned about how I could leverage the policies to acquire other cash flowing assets. And at the end of the day, the policy can be used as a uh, retirement vehicle. Um, it's not a government qualified account, which is a positive thing in my eyes because I'm not dictated on when I can take money in and out of it by my age. So it will be a vehicle that I use in my 60s, 70s, 80s as tax-free income. So those were the things that really turned me on to it. Um, the characteristics of that financial tool are in line with what I desire uh, in my own personal life when it comes to my money and the aspects that I want out of my money.
1: Now, you know, I think what has allowed you to be able to make a lot of these larger scale decisions is the fact that you understand these 16 characteristics of money and the ones that are the most important to you. Now, I'm not going to make you rattle off all Mm -hmm. 16, but can you speak to some of the ones that you feel are a little bit more pertinent to the average person that they might want to take into consideration when it comes to strategizing how they want to use and save their hard-earned money?
0: Yeah. Safety and security which means their money's not gonna disappear. It's a a hedge against loss. Can this thing you're putting your money in go down in value? Does the dollar amount go down? Okay, that's safety and security. Okay, returns. What type of return? For me, I took a risk in a business. So the business, the money I made from that business, I didn't want to be risky outside of the business. Okay, Um, and so when I got exposed to a financial tool that gave me contractual guaranteed returns that I could look at a piece of paper over the next 50 years. And it tells me how my money's growing bare minimum. That made me feel good because it wasn't a, it wasn't a hypothetical, right? And so the guaranteed returns, I put a premium on that as opposed to average returns because guarantees are real. And the average returns of the stock market wasn't good enough for me because average returns are not real. And if the, if the return is off by a half a percent or 1%, it messes up the whole forecast. And so for me, I'd rather have the guarantee. So for me, safety and security guaranteed returns. Um, And then at the end of the day, uh, for me, it was protection and access to capital, whether that was through straight liquidity, liquidity, meaning turning it into real cash quickly, or what I use more often, which is access to capital. Will someone give me access to money, not just my money, their money and the life insurance companies are doing that. Whereas, um, you know, a 401k, there's certain laws and regulations, um, and penalties that if you take your money out, you'll get penalized, you'll get taxed if it's in a, a pre-tax 401k. Uh, well, I can take a loan from a 401k. Well, what's this, what's the issue with that? What's the limit? right? And those limits are very uh, controlled. Um, if you have a substantial amount of money in a 401k, you really only have access to very little of it through loan provisions. Whereas with a life insurance company, I have access to 95% of the money that's in the policy in, in a loan provision. So it was really access to capital, liquidity, safety, security, and guaranteed returns. Those were the four that were most important to me. And as, as my family's wealth grows, protection of that wealth is very important. So asset protection, we won't dive down that rabbit hole, but asset protection federally and in your state are extremely important. And I can sit here today and say that over 80% of my family's wealth are in assets that are protected federally and state. So if someone came after me in litigation, they could not access any of that wealth.
1: Uh, No, that was a phenomenal breakdown. Uh, I love all that. And I think, you know, for the listeners, they probably had some moments in there where they were like, okay, wow, there's a lot of consideration that went into the things you're doing. And I think that's what drives this whole point home, which is that these aren't decisions you've made on a whim and they've been very well thought through. But that's also that that right there is the importance of educating yourself. You know, like you didn't, you don't have a, a big finance background, correct? No.
0: I mean, you can look at my degree and say that I do business and marketing with a minor in economics, but that didn't teach me how to increase my income. It didn't teach me uh, how to figure out what my savings rate is. It didn't teach me. And this is like, this would be probably part three or, or part three to the answer of the issue with money in our country is before I put my money into a life insurance policy, I studied it for nine months, right? I'm not in college. So why am I studying right because it was important to me and I read and watched and asked questions of people for nine months to really wrap my head around it to try and poke a hole in the strategy and so that that would be step number three is don't just study something for a day and get tired of it and throw it by the wayside like dive deep into a topic if it's important to you and unfortunately maybe finances isn't that people will say it's important but it goes back to don't lie to yourself like like, do you really care about what your money's doing? Um, if it, if if it, if you do, then you should be reading about money. You shouldn't be watching TikTok videos uh, about the next crazy dance craze, right? Like, <laughs>
1: don't even get me uh, started, man. Come on. Take, your uh, Use, Alex, every, take your time. Every time, every time I see uh, a post made about the possibility of TikTok getting banned. I'm like, please. <laughs> like like TikTok and cigarettes, let's yeah. go. Just lump them in in one policy. Let's get rid okay. of it.
0: Show me show me your bank statements and show me the setting on your phone on where your time is allocated on your apps and those two things in and of itself will tell me what matters most in your life.
1: Well, I mean that's the importance of goal setting and and I think that, you know, you you drove that point home with creating the, the vision, um, you know, uh, the, the, the vision from now until 2026. And, uh, I know we'll clip that up so that people can get, you know, a little bit of a visual of that. Um, but I also want people to know where to find out more about what you do. Um, because I'm sure there's going to be a number of people that are going to be of interest. So tell everyone where they can, uh, access you.
0: Appreciate it. Um, Facebook, Sean Ryder, S-A-J-W-N-R-I-D-E-R. Um, I'm probably on Derek's friends list. So if you find me there, that works. Instagram, um, Sean S H A W N underscore writer, R I D E R underscore, and then been trying to dabble in the TikTok sphere with, uh, Sean Rider underscore mentor. Um, but most of my content, um, written, I, I think I write better than video. So my written content long form is Facebook and Instagram. Instagram has a little bit more of my personal life on there too. Um, uh, and then, uh, Instagram Reels and TikTok will be 60 second videos. Um can't go deep in 60 seconds. So if you want to go deeper, Facebook and Instagram
1: posts. I love it. Well, hey Sean, thanks so much for coming on and uh, I'll definitely have you on again. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you again for jumping on the podcast today. I just want to take a quick second to remind you that we post a lot of free and helpful content on our social media pages. You can find us at Hard Bad Athletics on Instagram and Facebook. and Visit our website at www.hardbadathletics.com to learn more about what we do at our facility. Let's keep raising the standard together.